you know, the most dangerous people are the ones that in anything, not just medicine, uh, are the people that don't know what they don't know. And so I think that it's really important to be able to recognize that no matter what you do, no matter how smart you are, there's just so much knowledge in this world out there that it's impossible to, to know it all or be able, or even if you know a large share of it, to be able to process it all. Um, and that's okay, especially process it when you're, you know, acting in a, a time of high stress uh, where it may be life or death. Hi folks, I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Our guest for the next two episodes is Janelle Bludorn. Janelle is an emergency medicine physician assistant and a medical educator with a career that spans over a decade in emergency medicine. She's currently faculty at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine, but will be transitioning to a faculty role at Duke University School of Medicine in the fall of 2021. Janelle has held a variety of leadership roles in the PA world, most recently serving as the vice president of the Society of Emergency Medicine PAs. Her professional interests include mentorship of women in medicine, healthcare communication, point-of-care ultrasound, and intentional inclusivity in medical education. When she's not teaching or working in the emergency department by her own description, she's likely stress-baking, doing yoga, or navigating being a toddler mom during a pandemic. You can find her on social media, both Instagram and Twitter, at at Janelle R. Blue, that's J-A-N-E-L-L-E-R-B-L-U, all one word. I was lucky enough to train with Janelle when I was just starting out in emergency medicine, and I'm really happy to have her here on the podcast. In this episode, we're going to focus mostly on the internal environment and what it takes to perform under pressure. We're going to talk about recognizing shifting currents that go on around you during a critical resuscitation, about the idea of embracing uncertainty, and about the concept of reflective competency. There's really a ton here to learn, no matter what your role is as you perform under pressure. Before we dive in, two important ways that you can interact more with us here at The Emergency Mind. First, you can pick up a copy of the book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure. It's available on Amazon. Uh, and if you already have a copy, please consider leaving a review. That really helps us out. The other way is that you can sign up for our newsletter, which is called Knowledge Under Pressure, and it gives you a deep dive into a lot of the concepts we're discussing on this podcast. You can find that at emergencymind.com slash signup. Okay, all that said, let's jump into this episode. I hope you enjoy. All right, uh, Janelle, thank you. It's like so good to see you again face to face and or so to speak. And I'm, I'm honored that you'll come on the podcast and, and talk to us today. Thank you very much, Dan. It's very nice to see you, I guess, Zoom to Zoom more than face to face. But <laughs> exactly. I mean, okay, bad joke number one out of the way. <laughs> all right, good, good. Put that water under the bridge. Um, so, uh, I'm wondering if we can start with a little context. So for some of the folks that are, um, listening from other areas or listening from sort of out of the emergency medicine world, can you give folks some context for like who you are and, and what you do and sort of what your, your overall picture is? Absolutely. Um, I am Janelle Bludorn. I am an emergency medicine physician assistant or PA. Um, I'll probably shorten it to that. Um, and I'm also a medical educator. At the time of recording right now, I'm actually faculty at the UNC School of Medicine, but maybe by the time this airs, I will be moved over to the Duke School of Medicine where I'll be teaching in the PA program. Um, over there. Um, so I work clinically in the emergency department and I also teach PAs um, how for PA students how to be PAs, so medical education. Um, 
in terms of where I've been, uh, my job just prior to coming down to North Carolina was actually working with you um, when you were in residency uh, up at uh, in Boston at Massachusetts General Hospital. I was in the emergency medicine PA up there. Um, prior to that, I was in Santa Barbara, California um, in uh, a cottage health as an EMPA there. Um, I had gone to PA school in Philadelphia, but I actually hailed from middle of nowhere, South Dakota. So I'm always a very rural girl at heart. So um, that's a little bit about me um, and who I am professionally, where I've been. Right on. And when we, when we first met, which is, I think we decided now maybe like almost nine years ago, something yeah. like that, which is kind of amazing. Um, I was very fresh faced and sort of like wide eyed, like intern. And, and I was so grateful to you and many, many of the other PAs that were working with me to sort of show me the ropes as I was coming in to be a resident. And the way that it works in, in Mass General is a really wonderful setup where residents and PAs and attendings and nursing and everybody sort of works together in this very multidisciplinary team. Um, and that's that's different than it is at a lot of places, which which I think maybe a good thing to start with is sort of like can you do a little bit of background on like, what is like, what is the role of a PA? Not that you can speak for everybody across the entire world, but what is the role of a PA and specifically the role of a PA in emergency medicine? What does some of that spectrum look like? Absolutely. Um, and I, I think that I'm probably a good person to answer this because in each of those three practice settings that I've mentioned, my role has looked a little bit different. Um, but at the center, you know, the centerpiece for, for all my roles in all of these places was this idea of team-based practice. And so no matter what I was doing, um, you know, whatever patients I was seeing or involved in their care, um, I was always working as some part of a team and there was always at least some sort of physician involvement in that. And so really as, as a PA, my job is to see patients, um, you know, get histories, do physical examinations, do procedures, order diagnostics, you know, treat them for things, but also um, always doing that um, with some involvement of, of a physician. And so say like at Massachusetts General Hospital, MGH, um, the attending physicians saw every single one of my patients, you know, right after I saw them and everything. I mean, sometimes we would see really critical patients and they'd get like whisked away really fast to like, you know, the cath lab or something like that. And, you know, that, that would happen sometimes um, versus like when I worked in Santa Barbara, California, um, it was part of my like supervising physician agreement that certain levels of like ESI or severity, um, you know, did not have to be staffed immediately by a physician, but they would undergo chart review. Um, and then at, at UNC, um, I essentially, and again, I'm, you know, more than a decade in, into practice at this point in time, um, a, a bit more independent in terms of you know, the patients that I see in the physician involvement. So essentially I have to have a physician available to me at all times um, to step into a case if need be. Um, but then I do have a supervising physician with whom I do quality assurance checks every six months. And so really, you know, it, it's kind of dependent upon what the state laws and what, you know, the practice setting has set up in terms of what that supervision, what that collaboration looks like with physicians. And, you know, I think that all of these do work as long as somebody understands like what their skill set is, has adequate medical knowledge, and really has a very supportive team. So that, that's really, you know, kind of the role, you know, of a physician assistant. But um, again, you know, we, we see patients, we do procedures, we, you know, treat, um, you know, conditions, um, and again, always as part of a team. 
And I think that team-based sort of dynamic approach to emergencies and performance under pressure is something that I'm, I'm incredibly interested in because a lot of the stuff that we talk about on the podcast is, is, you know, individual skills and then skills within the context of a team. And some of those are directly correlated and some of those are a little different and, and what we need to perform uh, really does depend in some sense on our role in a larger team and a larger process. And so much of emergency medicine, um, I would say probably all of emergency medicine relies on the ability of us all to come together in one moment and bring our knowledge collectively to this patient, uh, no matter what the circumstances are going. Mm -hmm. So um, I wonder if we we can pivot here a little bit and sort of zoom into a particular case. So I don't know if you have a case in mind, otherwise I'm, I'm going to sort of like make one up off the top of my head for something. I mean, I was actually, I, I was thinking about a case that I had not too long ago, and I think it actually lends itself well to this idea of a team. So mm-hmm. do you want to go with yeah, my case? Let's we can do maybe it. play with you, play with your case later right if on. you want to. Um, but um, so I won't get too specific because, you know, Chapel Hill is not that big of a town. Uh, so uh, we, yeah, we'll be very, uh, you know, HIPAA compliant here, but um you know, not that long ago, I was uh, working in the emergency department in the um, in, in Chapel Hill, and a patient that we knew nothing about, we had no records on or anything like that, um, you know, came in and it was altered mental status, like found down altered mental status. And I had seen this patient, EMS didn't really know anything about him, but essentially he had depressed mental status, decreased respirations, he had pinpoint pupils. And I'm like, okay, this guy is like opiate overdose, hundred percent, you know, this is what, what we're going to do. You know, so we lined him, labbed him, gave him some, you know, IV Narcan and, oh, well, you know, sure enough, he, he popped to and I'm like, okay, whatever, you know, we'll go ahead and we'll treat this patient, um, you know, kind of standards we do. I know we saw a lot of opioid o- overdoses up in Boston. I feel like that very was true. Um, a very common thing that we saw. We don't see that quite as frequently down in Chapel Hill. So it's a little bit, it's something I might've been a little bit rustier um, with, even though it was something that was very central to my practice when I was working up in Boston. We don't see those uh, quite, quite as often, um, it's becoming more common, but not quite as often here. Um, and so I kind of, you know, knew what th- we were going to do for this patient and we're going to kind of like, just continue on. I went to go see the next patient. This guy was stable. You know, we were going to observe him for a while, wait, you know, make sure that he didn't have any other co-ingestions or anything else like that going on. Um, and the nurse calls me back in and she's like, yeah, his breathing is real bad again. And he is altered again. And I'm like, well, let's give him some more Narcan. And this was just a kind of like a recurring pattern that, you know, this, you know, continued to happen. The rest of his workup was like completely clean. He had opiates in his system and and that was it. Head scan was negative. EKG was good. Labs were good and everything like that. And it was after a couple of rounds like this, I'm like, you know what? I think that we're going to have to like get this guy an airway or kind of expand, you know, what's going on at this point. Um, you know, I don't, my, the attending in this area, I had already let him know, um, about this patient, everything, and kind of just say, you know, ask, you know, is there anything I'm missing? He's like, no, it sounds like you're doing the right thing. And at that point I, w- I went over to the attending. It was, um, and I kind of go over thing with him and I'm like, I actually, I, I am at the point where I don't know, and I need your help. I need you to be a very active part of my team right now. And we thought everything through and he's like, yeah, let's do a Narcan drip for this guy. And I'm like, oh, I should have known that, but it was almost just kind of like talking through with him, you know, to say like, you've checked all of these things off your list. You know, you knew that, you know, you've, you've covered all your bases, you're doing the right things. And it was, you know, it was more of like, not necessarily a gap in my knowledge, but it was a gap in the retrieval of knowledge mm-hmm. that I did have and, you know, pulling him and, and having the, you know, the humility and the whereabouts to say, like, I don't know, um, and be able to pull somebody into that team that 
knew more than I did at that point or could retrieve that better than I. Um, and we did that. And we actually pulled in our emergency pharmacist um, to kind of help with everything as well, too. Got this guy started on Narcan drip. He, you know, we didn't have to do an airway for him or anything like that. And he ended up doing well. Um, I followed up on him a, a bit later and it turned out that he was on um like goop. Um, and so that, as you know, that doesn't you know, always work that well with kind of like our, our Narcan boluses. And a lot of times these people need to be, um, you know, put on drips, but I thought it was a really good example of, you know, I, I'd done all the right things, you know, but I was at kind of at the, the end of where I could retrieve that knowledge, um, at that point, that point in time. Um, and I knew that I needed to kind of pull in, my my teammates and that's something i really try to impart on my students that i i teach um, my pa students is not only like teaching them the medical knowledge and teaching them you know the interpersonal communication skills and, and that type of thing but also letting them know that it's okay to say i don't know and recognizing when you don't know and when you need to call on your teammates and so that's that was a case that i had kind of thought about yeah, that's awesome. Thank, thank you for taking us through that. I think there's a lot of stuff to to, to dig into in that. And um, but I think the first thing that jumps out is me is it, it, can we drill into that moment where you're sort of looking at the patient and you're feeling uh, what I guess I'd describe as the internal tension of realizing, hey, what I'm trying to do here maybe isn't quite working the way I want it to. And you're starting to have this mismatch between your map of what you want reality to look like and what, what reality is actually looking like. And you're starting to feel that tension. What is that? How do you conceive of that? What does that feel like for you? And, and how has that changed for you as you've gotten better and sort of more comfortable in your own skin? Absolutely. I think that there's always a bit of panic. Everybody, even the, the most like cool as a cucumber people, like they they have to have at least like a split second of a panic. Um, and certainly that was something that, that did happen. And it's not necessarily panic. Like, Oh my God, is this patient going to die in front of me right now? It's like, sometimes it's like, Oh my God, I don't know what to, to do next. Or, um, you know, I think that I've exhausted all the things that, that I, you know, that were kind of part of that, that algorithmic thought process of that, the way that I thought that this case was going to go. And so I think, you know, if you say that you don't ever have kind of that, um, you know, internal split second of panic, I, I think that you're probably, probably lying or somebody's probably lying. Um, but, but I definitely had that. Um, but then I think you recenter yourself and you kind of go back through and say, you know, what am I potentially missing here? And a lot of times, um, you know, that will be, like I've kind of already mentioned, like retrieval of medical knowledge. And so just thinking more deeply um, about, you know, what that case is presenting in front of you and thinking like physiologically, like what could I potentially be missing here? And just kind of going through those steps um, and just doing that in, in a really kind of calm manner and kind of a, a more centered manner and just like letting that, you know, bit of panic happen and then letting it pass and not perseverating on it. Yeah. Because I think that that's something... When I was earlier in my career, um, I think that I would probably perseverate on that and then maybe have it snowball into kind of like this idea of um, like imposter syndrome, like, oh, I'm not smart enough for this at all, or I do not have like, you know, the critical thinking skills to do this at all. Um, and definitely earlier in my career, I think that I would kind of snowball down that panic a little bit more. But now that I've had some more years, and I think especially being an educator too, has, has helped me with this. I'm okay to let that kind of sit with me for a little bit um, and then let it move past and then be able to kind of move to that point of, of clarity. 
what does that look like? Like when you're sitting in that moment, and I want to get like as granular as we can possibly make this, right? So you're sitting in that moment and you have this sense of, I don't know, to me, sometimes it almost feels like the same sense as when you're like lost somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Like you have that, that delta between what you think it is and what's actually happening. And, and yeah, there's this feeling of like, oh man, I'm, I'm like, I'm off my path here in some way, shape or form. And then you sit with that and what you're describing. And I love the way you put that. You're going to feel that almost like that wave of internal stimuli and emotion. And, and maybe we can even break down like what that feels like internally for you. And then it, and then you allow it to pass by you without getting hooked by it. Right. Mm-hmm. Like going, getting back into this wonderful deep sort of Buddhist concept of like Shempa, like the arrow with the hook on it that sort of pulls you. Right. Yes. And you're just going to allow that, <laughs> that thought to move through. And then you're going to sit in the space that's left over afterwards and apply your knowledge. So how, how do you do that? Like, what does that look like for you? And, and, you know, if you're three patients deep and people are yelling at you or 30 patients deep and things are going on, what, what skills do you employ? Do you, do you stand in a certain way? Do you breathe in a certain pattern? Like, what does that look like for you? Oh, I love the idea of a power stance. Um, I'm not going to lie <laughs> <Totally>. though. <laughs> and I, I definitely, so I, I am, I, I, I don't think, I don't know how many people here listening uh, know me. I'm a very tall person, a tall woman, I guess. Um, so I, I am kind of, I, I a lot of times kind of use my stature um, to my advantage, especially like when taking a power stance, but I also do not have a poker face. And it's something that I definitely, mm. I actively work on that. I'm the worst. I would, I would be the worst at playing poker. But I, I do know that when I have that split second of panic that happens sometimes, like I know my eyes get really, really big. Uh, and I notice that I, I'm doing that. And um, it's almost like a biofeedback thing that I do. I'm like, okay, kind of squint your eyes a little bit here. You know, you know, don't look like a deer in the headlights. Get, you know, put your poker face on right now. Um, because I think that people in, in that room, you know, like the patient, your nursing staff, your nursing assistants, those type of things, they'll be looking to you. Um, and if you've got, you know, kind of that, you know, wild eyed, um, look on your face, you know, there's going to be a lot of confidence that's, you know, lacking at at that point. And so, um, I, I do realize that about myself and I do actively, you know, try to put on that, that kind of calm poker face. And so that's the first thing that I do. Um, I do do a bit of a, a power stance as well too. Um, mostly, you know, kind of just like putting the shoulders back and, uh, standing up, um, straight, um, and everything and kind of like a wide stance and everything. But, you know, I think really for me, it's almost just like, you know, kind of relaxing the face and realizing that what you're feeling inside can actually be externalized and can really affect the team members, um, and your, your patient in front of you too, when it comes to kind of that confidence and, um, you know, that ability for everybody to kind of work together. That, that emotion and how you express that emotion is very contagious. And it, it, it almost, it doesn't really matter where you are in the hierarchy of your team that is being deployed with, you know, lateral or vertical or whatever, but like wherever you are and whatever tools you have to deploy, the calmer and more concrete you can be as you're doing that, the better it is. And, and I think that that, that is why I'm harping on this so much, because that idea of, of um, recognizing the moment that you need to deploy your sort of coolant systems or your afterburners or whatever it is. And then like really getting in that. And there's, there's the whole um, Jordan B. Peterson idea of mm-hmm. like the lobster kind of stance, right. Where he talks about like actually the, 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 um, 
physiological and sort of like neuro uh, anatomical pathways that are activated by sort of like standing up erect as opposed mm-hmm. to sort of like slouched over and scared. And I think there's a lot to say for that. Like when we think about like running a room and running like a, you know, like your recess stance or your recess voice kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, when you were, when you were like throwing ourselves back in time slightly, when you were just starting this, how did you learn that? Did you, did you have role models that taught you? Was it explicit? Was it implicit? Like if you could go back in time and teach, you know, younger Janelle, one or two things about that, what, what would you teach her? What would I, well, I'm going to go back to the, the first part of that question. And this will kind of reminisce back probably to a time again, when we were uh, working with each other. Um, I, I remember, so I, working at MGH, we, the PAs get to kind of graduate up to go work in the acute area or the area that's called mm-hmm. acute and that it is literally the sickest of the sick patients. And there's, you know, special training that we go through and everything. Um, and it's a lot like at that point, the point when I had graduated, <laughs> there's I, an understatement. It's a yes, <laughs> it is a lot. It is. Um, at the point where I, you know, I kind of graduated up to be able to work in acute, I had been a PA for four years because I had worked out in California for a while. And then I'd worked at MGH for a year. And so, you know, I thought at that point I had seen sick patients before. I'm like, yeah, I've seen sick patients. These patients are going to be a little bit more sick. Oh boy. Those patients were a lot more sick and a lot more critically ill. And they needed, you know, more, um, you know, critical thinking and more procedures and more interventions and that type of thing. And yeah, I really highlighted the, the importance of team, but I think that I learned a lot in terms of kind of how to, you know, deal with this and, you know, kind of having that confidence by just watching and learning from the people around me. I think that, you know, some of the most brilliant people that I, I've ever worked with were like the physicians and the PAs and the nurses uh, that I worked with um, there at FGH. And I, I looked up to a lot of people. And I mean, it was always fun working with you because you always had like a very kind of cool cool, chill vibe and everything. And I'm like, okay, what can I learn from Dan? So I'd like work, you know, I'd work with different people and and just try to like pick and choose things that I saw that I admired in these people um, that served them well um, in terms of, you know, seeing patients that, you know, were extraordinarily ill and, you know, needed extraordinary measures to keep them alive. Um, That was also very stressful for me. And um, kind of shortly after I graduated up to working in acute and seeing these really, really sick patients and, you know, kind of picking up things from my colleagues. Um, I actually did get really into, um, mindfulness practices too, because I realized that it was very stressful and it was kind of just taking a toll on me and my stress levels. So I actually, uh, was involved with this program, um, through MGH called the, it's the Benson Hendry Institute. And so they kind of are Institute on mindfulness, but they had a program called the smart program is stress management and re- resiliency training. It was specifically for healthcare providers. And I think that was one of the most influential, um, kind of decisions that I made in terms of being able to process very stressful things that happened at work, um, decisions that I'd have to make as part of a team uh, for patients or with patients at work. Um, and, and just really kind of, you know, gave me a lot of tools that I could employ, um, you know, while on shift, but then also when decompressing from a shift after you've, you know, really seen, you know, just this, you know, horrible illness and, you know, trauma and everything like that. And I really think that that was one of the things that was most influential, um, you know, for me. And it was, I'm always very happy that I decided to enroll in that program. 
Oh, that, that's wonderful. I really, I, I wish I'd known about that when I was a resident there. I think that'd be incredibly useful. There, there's so much of, I think so much of what we do and learn to step into our roles operates sort of in the way that you're describing, which is that we, you know, you go through this shock and you sort of like see this crazy thing happen and you, your eyes get really wide and you just sort of like look around at the people next to you and you're like, are you seeing this? Are you seeing this crazy mm-hmm. thing that's happening right now? Like, well, how are these people reacting? Well, how am I supposed to react? And, you know, you look to the people that are ahead of you and you watch the first couple of times that they do something. And they just, for me, they just seemed superhuman in this way that I'd never seen before. Right. Like I remember mm-hmm. um, one of the seniors when I was a brand new one, just looking like he was made out of a block of ice as this person was like dying in front of him and just like coolly doing it. And I was like, how, how, how did you do that? How did you do that? <laughs> yeah. And, and I think like part of the real reason that, that I do this project, this podcast that we run the emergency mind is to try to make some of that implicit stuff more explicit and to create that roadmap for it. Um, so I love the idea of programs out there, like the smart program and, uh, and thinking about what skills we can teach folks as they're doing this. And mm-hmm. now I want to come back in a second to what you're describing about what do you do after the case to decompress? Because I think that's an incredibly crucial issue. Um, mm-hmm. But there's something you said a minute ago that I also don't want to lose the thread of. Okay. So you said you're back in this case and you've had this moment where you realize the Narcan isn't working the way that you mm-hmm. want it to. You're, you, you know, you have your wide eye moment and you, you adopt your power stance and you sort of like take control of your room again. And you're going through your algorithms and you're thinking and you're, you're thinking deeply into your medical knowledge and you're saying, hey, this, this just isn't fitting. I think I need to get backup. I think mm-hmm. I need to bump this. I think I need to bring my team around me. And and what is that moment like? Like, how do you go from that moment of recognizing you need to gather more resources to, to doing that? And whether doing that is, you know, going over to the other players in the team and asking the attending, or if nobody's around and you're pulling your nursing staff and you're pulling everybody around you, I, that moment of of realizing that like, Hey, I need more hands on this project. I need more eyes on this project is a big moment. And it's easy for that to get done wrong. And I guess wrong in that case is like either internally wrong. Like I feel like I can't handle it and I'm an imposter and I'm whatever, Mm -hmm. or externally wrong. Like I create a bunch of friction and chaos as opposed to actually galvanizing my team. So what does that look like for you? How do you do that? Absolutely. Um, and I think this kind of goes back to, um, something that I had integrated into one of my uh, class sessions this uh, semester for my for my PA students. But um, I had read this interesting thing, probably on some stupid website like BuzzFeed, or I don't even know that's around anymore, some like clickbait thing. I read this uh, thing that said that the hardest three um, words for somebody to say um, are, I don't know. And it's actually the second most difficult, like three words for somebody to say um, is, uh, I love you um, when they're in a new relationship. Relationship. And so I, I, that was kind of like the clickbait uh, portion of that. Um, but it, it was interesting and it kind of stuck with me. And so I, I made it into this whole, um, you know, session for, for my PA students. But I think that it is true. It is very difficult to get to that point and actually, you know, mutter those three words, I don't know. But I think it's also very important, not just as, you know, a PA, you know, to be able to do it, but even you as a, as a physician to, you know, to go to your colleagues and say, you know what? it's not for a lack of trying, but I'm at the point where I don't know. But I I think that, you know, how you do this well 
is that you really need to rely on the competency of um, interpersonal and communication skills. Um, if you haven't kind of um, gotten it already, I'm, I'm really into like competencies when it comes to medical education and medicine and everything, but you really need to be, um, you know, good at that, that competency of interpersonal communication skills. And essentially what that looks like in this moment is very succinctly um, and clearly summarizing the problem that's at hand in front of you, the things that you've considered, the things that you've done, and what's worked and what hasn't worked. And then be able to essentially give your team members an elevator pitch and say, you know what, this is the situation, these are the interventions, this is the result so far. It's not what I thought the result was going to be, I don't know, please help me. And so I think that, you know, if you are able to clearly convey that um, with communication in some form, um, you know, and, and again, like that communication could be like the verbal communication that I did with the attending at, at that point. Um, you know, we we say, I don't know all the time in the emergency department when we page our consultants. Uh, do y'all still use pagers out there? We use pagers here still. Um, <laughs> you know, so that's, you know, kind of within like that, that written context of saying, you know, here's the situation. I don't know. Um, and I think that's something that's really important. It really boils down to having um, good communication skills with people that are on your team. And how do you handle the internal piece of that? Like when you were, when you were earlier in your career, you know, you mentioned that you might've felt that feeling and that might've taken a path leading towards imposter syndrome or feeling something like that. And I think there's a lot of folks that listen to this that are uh, early in their career. And even if they're not, you know, they're people like, like me, you and I, who are still learning how to practice our craft and will continue mm -hmm. to be learning how to practice our craft as long as we're lucky enough to be on our feet. Right. Yeah. And I think that that sense of embracing the uncertainty and the limits of our knowledge in a way that's productive and healthy in the moment and not self-defeating is a, is a real open challenge. So how have you come to that? I mean, a lot of trial and error, quite honestly, I think that, you know, there were times that I've, you know, maybe needed help and were, and I don't want to say stubborn, but waited a little bit too long to do that. And, you know, never had, you know, a poor outcome, um, you know, or a catastrophic outcome or anything like that, but you learn from those mistakes that, that you make. Um, then there's certainly been times where, um, you know, maybe I've asked for help maybe even too soon. And it's almost like kind of finding that, that sweet spot. And that comes with practice that comes with experience. Um, and that experience should be on, you know, a, a team where you are with people that, you know, have trust and have respect for, for one another. And I think that, you know, those are two of the most important things to have with people that you are going to be practicing medicine with or caring for patients with is, you know, having trust and respect for the people that are working around you, but then also having trust in yourself and respecting like the knowledge and the skills um, that, that you personally have too. And that has taken me a, a long time, you know, to get there. And I think that every time that I feel like I've, you know, gotten there a little bit more, like I'm in a good place um, when it comes to kind of like trusting and respecting my own knowledge, I'm, you know, walloped with, you know, a case that, you know, or a case or, you know, you know, something in some other role of my, my work, like as, as a, as a teacher or as a professor here, you know, where I'm, I realize like there is so much out there that you don't know. And I think, 
that, you know, the most dangerous people are the ones that in, in anything, not just medicine, uh, are the people that don't know what they don't know. And so I think that it's really important to be able to recognize that no matter what you do, no matter how smart you are, there's just so much knowledge in this world out there that it's impossible to, to know it all or be able, or even if you know a large share of it, to be able to process it all. Um, and that's okay, especially process it when you're, you know, acting in a, a time of high stress uh, where it may be life or death. And I think that just letting yourself be okay with that, easier said than done. Um, I think that you have to fail a lot of times or not be okay with it or feel like you did something, um, you know, either prematurely or too late in order to kind of figure out when, when and how and where that kind of sweet spot is um, for knowing when to ask for help or, or knowing, you know, when you need to kind of um, you know, expand the people that you are involving actively on your team at that point. And, and how explicit are you when you are doing uh, sort of a trial and error or an experiment like that? Like, are you, when you start your shift before you run into this case, are you like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to be conscious about the level at which I should ask for help. And I'm going to try to respond to this internal signal and then I'm going to reflect and ask for feedback afterwards? Or is this sort of more like, okay, as I look back at my entire day, what's my average of this? I think, yeah, I think this is kind of, this is interesting. I don't, I don't think that I'm as intentional as that first option that, that you had given there, um, Dan, but I, I think that this is a, um, this, there's a, this idea of, um, reflective competence. I don't know if this is something that you're really familiar with. Um, and so reflect, this is something I use a lot when I'm, when I'm teaching, and I think that it can apply here. And this idea of reflective competence is that when somebody is kind of in that, they don't know what they don't know stage, um, they're unconsciously incompetent. They don't necessarily, they don't know what it is they don't know. Um, and you know, they, you know, maybe they're willing to learn, but they don't realize that there's something that's out there to learn or something that's out there for them to kind of like set a goal for, or, you know, reflect on. Um, I don't think that I'm in that box when it comes to, to this um, in general, like walking into to a shift. I think that there are people, oh, then the next step is people that are like consciously incompetent, where they realize that there's something out there that they're not that good at, um, but they need to work towards it. And these are the people that are ready to, to learn. Um, or ready to kind of like gain new skills or new confidences. Um, next is kind of moving through these stages, people that are consciously competent. And so th th I think that that's kind of this more, um, the sense where you really are intentional um, with what you do and you, you know, you've done something, you know, a fair number of times, maybe you've reflected on something a fair number of times. You know, I use this idea, like when I'm teaching procedures for, for students. And so, you know, maybe they, they, are good at doing something, um, but they really have to kind of think through it. And then lastly, and this is the next, the last one is kind of like where I, I think about the stage of enlightenment when it comes to reflective competence. And this is this idea of being like unconsciously competent where something is just like muscle memory um, and you're able to kind of just like go through. And I, I think that, you know, I think that for me, the ideal here would be to be when, when thinking about mindfulness and, you know, thinking about, kind of reflecting on, on these stressful situations and, and being able to perform highly under these stressful situations is being consciously competent. And so kind of realizing, you know, that you, 
that you that you need to be able to reflect and you know continually improve and that type of thing and being very conscious about it. Are we all there at that point? Always no. You know, are there sometimes that we kind of like hit the mark and we're like, yes, I was very consciously competent, you know, about you know, the communication or, you know, the asking for help or, you know, the way that I managed this case. Um, but there may be times that you just kind of like do it in muscle memory. And you're like, maybe reflecting back later and say like, I did a really good job, you know, doing that, but I didn't realize that I was doing a good job while it was happening. And that's kind of that stage of enlightenment where you're unconsciously competent, but this is, I'm, I'm kind of like, applying something, you know, a, a process that I use, like when teaching more tangible skills, um, to students, to something that is just really not tangible, but I guess that kind of makes it, you know, um, that kind of makes it kind of cool, I guess. <laughs> I don't yeah, know. No, I mean, I think that's, I think that's incredibly interesting. And that, and that idea of applying, you know, the, the stages of competency, which, you know, has this link to sort of like the Dunning-Kruger kind of ideas, but, but you're, mm -hmm. you're digging in this stages of competency, applying it to the act of accepting uncertainty and not knowing, mm -hmm. which is such a fascinating mix of that, right? Like how do you, yeah. how conscious are you of the lack and boundaries of your knowledge within the moment of a case where somebody is stopping breathing because the Narcan's wearing off sooner than you mm -hmm. want it to. Like, wow, what an interesting multi-layered, you know, layer cake or whatever you call that in there. It's probably Ooh, not a layer cake, a snack. but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's, you know, it's important as people are listening to that also to think about the fact that like those, like we move in and out of those stages of competence, um, depending on what we're doing, what facet of what we're doing, but also like, have we eaten, slept and prepared ourselves for the day? Like, am I hungry or tired? Am I like, mm -hmm. are there other things going on? Am I, do I have high levels of extraneous cognitive load forcing me into a less competent sort of stance for what I'm doing for this moment? And, and it all sort of rolls together in these things and it all has to be rapid processed in the middle, ending with you having, or beginning with you having the acceptance to say, I have reached a point where I am at the limit of what I can do and I need to invoke mm -hmm. my team around me. Man, mm -hmm. what an awesome decision to spend time like focused on like that. Right. What a cool way to dig into that. Um, when we when we switch gears in a little bit, uh, we're gonna talk about how to train that and build that in a teams and what environments foster that, which I really am, am jazzed to do. And that'll sort of come up and come up in part two, like to, you know, in the future. While we're, while we're writing out, sort of finishing out this arc. So, okay, so you go and you get your tending, you get your team, you guys start this Narcan drip, things are, things are looking up, the patient looks better and you move about your life and you go home and you end the case. Or not even you go home, you just, you end the case and it's about time to do something else afterwards. What does that moment look like for you? What are you doing to, to close out and, and recover? I mean, I think that this is an area of needed improvement for me personally, especially when still on, on shift, because I think that myself and, you know, maybe probably a, a lot of people that work in emergency medicine, like there's that next patient to be seen, you know, there's a waiting room with, you know, 20, 30 more patients in it. Um, and I think that sometimes we don't always give ourselves the, you know, the grace to process things in that moment, um, you know, especially we, we don't always have time to like eat or pee when we're at work. And so why would we have the luxury to be able to kind of, um, let ourselves be at peace with, you know, a, a difficult um, decision that, that, you know, we've 
you know, had to kind of go through. And I think that this is an area where I personally, and I am, I'm sure I'm speaking for a lot of people that work in emergency medicine too, um, could be better at. And so I do think that for me personally, unless it's something where we have like a, a group, group debrief or something like that for like a true, like, you know, trauma, you know, catastrophic type of case, um, where we take that time to do that. Um, a lot of times this happens back at home, um, at the end, uh, end of a shift. And I, you know, I think that for me personally, I, I would love to be able to do this more in, in the moment and kind of, you know, reflect, but I think that a lot of us that work in emergency medicine are extraordinary, um, compartmentalizers. We're able to take something and, you know, fold it up neatly, put it in a box and, um, deal with it later. Um, and, and hopefully we do deal with it later instead of, instead of just never dealing with it and then having, you know, a box of, you know, boxes and boxes of these, you know, horrible things that have, you know, you've had to do, um, or be involved with, you know, kind of stacking up in the back of your, in the back of your mind. Uh, but for me personally, um, I do try to reflect on things when I'm on my way home. Um, you know, I, I usually like to have a podcast on or something like that when I'm going to work, but when I'm leaving work, I like it to be quiet. Um, I like to kind of go back and think through things and see where I could have improved and have a bit of reflection and not only improved with like my medical knowledge or my technical skills or anything like that, you know, even improved on how I felt or the emotions that I was exuding, um, you know, during that time. And, and just once I've reflected on it, let it go and let it be and not come back to it or perseverate on it. Sometimes, you know, this reflection does include reaching out to somebody with like a text or an email that may have been involved with that, that case as well too, to kind of check on them and see how they're feeling, or even just to say, thank you. Um, if, especially if it's somebody that I had reached out to, but, um, you know, this is something I, I do, I do a lot of reflection. Um, and I, and when I do the reflection, I really try to have a neutral to positive um, mindset with it and, and not a, a negative uh, mindset with it. Because I think that once you kind of have, you apply this negative mindset to the reflection, um, you perseverate and you say, I should have done, I should have done, I should have done. And you know what, it's in the past. You can't, you can't go back and should have done it um, because that, that boat, had, that, that ship has sailed. Um, so really it's, it's really, it's after shift, um, which I've listened to several of your, your, uh, episodes here. And you have a lot of people that, you know, advocate for doing these things on shift. And I wish that's something that I, I could integrate into my, my clinical practice a bit more. Janelle, this is, this has been awesome to do this. And I, I think there's like so much depth in what you just said about the arc of, you know, being in the middle of a moment and recognizing, your strengths and your limitations and, and pivoting in that moment to seek uh, consensus and team building and, and broader scopes of practice, and then trying to come home. And there, there's so much depth in that. Um, you know, and I'm looking forward to the second part of this, where we talk about building the structures that help people get to that point where, where you are sort of learning on their own about this. Uh, as we come to the end of this first part, though, I'm wondering if you have any challenges that you want to leave folks with, something they, they can be doing better or different based on what we just talked about. Yeah, I, I think that I opened up maybe a, a bit of vulnerability here. And I, I feel a little vulnerable right now, like 
talking a lot about this idea of admitting that you don't know something. Um, and I think that, you know, I think that that is a very vulnerable state. And I think that it feels uncomfortable to be vulnerable sometimes, but I think that it can be extraordinarily valuable, um, not only for, you know, kind of the, the depth of knowledge um, when you're working clinically, but also for like role modeling um, for medical learners and for people that are on your team and letting them know that the person that they may be perceived as like the, the smartest person in that room sometimes doesn't know. And, and that's, that's okay. So what I want to challenge uh, your listeners uh, to do um, is the next time that they're in a tricky situation, it doesn't necessarily have to be a clinical situation. Um, I want you to really kind of push the boundaries of your knowledge until you get to that point where you're like, I don't know. And don't Google it. Don't go to like, you know, the Google machine um, on our smartphone here and, and look it up, but actually go to somebody and very clearly and succinctly tell them what that problem was. Uh, could be a clinical case. It could be, you know, you know, some like random trivia or something like that and, and let them know like what you've gone through, um, what the question is, and then say those words, I don't know, can you help me? Um, I, I want everybody to, to do that. It feels vulnerable, but it also feels like freeing and empowering at the same time. I don't know. I, I, I want everybody to do that, please. Phenomenal. Awesome. Janelle, thank you so much for joining us. It is, it is wonderful to have you on this and, and great to see you again. Thank you very much, Dan. It was a pleasure being here. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed. As always on this podcast, our goal is to dive deep into what it takes to perform under pressure. Nothing that we discuss here should be construed as medical advice, and all of the opinions that we discuss are our own and are not necessarily representative of any organization with which we were affiliated or for whom we work. If you want to go even deeper and get more involved, don't forget to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, and you can find it at emergencymind.com book. All right, good luck out there.